translations that actually uh, highlight what Jesus said in red. And the rest of the Bible is all in black. And so Jesus is red letter. You know, everything that he said is red letter. So what they say when they say I'm a red letter Christian is, I just want to throw out all the things about this wrathful, angry God of the Old Testament. And I just want to follow Jesus because, man, he's kind and he's compassionate and he's really loving and all that. That's the kind of God that I want to follow. The massive problem with that is that no one gave us a clearer picture of hell than Jesus. Out of all the times that it's talked about in the Bible, no one spent more time on this subject than Jesus did. And in fact, the the doctrine that we have of hell is most clearly articulated by Jesus himself. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story that Jesus articulated today to kind of wrap our minds around this and the reality of it. And, and what I want to do is I want to explore some of the objections that we have in our, in our society and in our own mind and our own hearts about this. And I want to kind of tease it out in light of what Jesus said. And um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 16. That's where we're going to hang out today. Um, we're going to explore three things. We're going to explore three things. And I got this from someone that you, you know now has become just incredibly uh, helpful uh, to me. But uh, Tim Keller looked at this message. Pastor Tim Keller, he's a, he's a pastor in New York City. He outlined these three things from this passage. I think he's absolutely right. He said the doctrine of hell is critical for three things. It's crucial for understanding your own heart. It's crucial for living at peace in the world. Ironically, that's going to be crazy. But it's also critical for understanding the love of God. You say, man, how in the world is that possible? And let me just assure you right now, if you're ready for a fire and brimstone message today and you're like, I'm tempted to leave because of that, hang in there. Because my hope is at the end of all this that we get a sense of the love of God like we may have never seen it before. So hang in there. Let's go. All right, you guys, you guys ready? Uh, let me pray for us real quick and then we'll kind of dive into this together. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. We're grateful again to take a time out from the rest of the week and explore things that deeply matter. My prayer today, God, is that no matter where we're coming from and what baggage we bring into this room today, is that all of us are just ready to wrestle with something at a level that it needs to be wrestled with intellectually. But that we'd also translate it, God, into a, a deep examining of our own hearts. So do that work today, God. Use me, God, in in whatever end you want to do in the work that you want to do in every one of our lives. Um, Use the words of mine that that match your truth and just erase all the ones that don't. So use this time well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 16. Uh, It's found in your uh, pew Bible. I think it's page 493, something like that. We're going to start in verse 19. There was a rich man. This is Jesus talking to a particular crowd. There's a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Well, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, we could also say hell, uh, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony there. 
Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, our first point here is hell is necessary for understanding your own heart. Now, the good news for us as we kind of begin here is that uh, hell is often described with this language of fire and darkness as is described in the New Testament from Jesus and from some of his earliest followers. They use these words fire and darkness to describe hell. And what a lot of scholars have uh, determined is that these words are largely metaphorical. They don't actually describe actual fire and actual darkness. It's all metaphorical, referring to something else. And you might be tempted, like me, to be like, whew, okay, man, at least it's not a place that actually has fire and actually has darkness. Uh, but as one pastor pointed out, it's actually symbolic to point to something infinitely worse. That might be tough to swallow. We're going to get into that in just a second here. But the, the image in this story is incredibly clear. Uh, the rich man had his good things in life, and Lazarus had his bad things. And when Lazarus trusted in God, at the end of all things, he got brought into heaven right alongside Father Abraham. And the rich man perished in hell, and, and the two have been separated by this massive chasm. And the, again, the picture when we wrestle with this, it's just, it grades against our emotions, because like we, we just don't like this. It's repulsive. The whole story is just nasty and ugly. Like there's something inside of us that's like, oh, I don't like that. Now, like the image that we get in some ways is, is of like people in hell being like, let us out, let us out, God, we want out. And God's like, no way. Like it's fire for you for all eternity. That's kind of this image that we get. And I can't, I can't tell you right now, nothing could be further from the case, even in this story. God is not there looking down and saying, man, you got what you deserve, like leveling out condemnation. That's not what happens here. This is, a, this is the picture here. Let me help us understand this here. The picture here is that the rich man, you've got to understand this. Commentators all over, across the board, they'll, they'll say this. This is, this is common across the board. The rich man here does a couple of things that really help us identify where he's at and where his heart level is in all of this. Number one, he does not ask to get out. You catch that? In the middle of all this, the rich man is not saying, hey, can I somehow get out of here and then just be in heaven? No, he's not asking to go be with Abraham. He never once says, I want out of here. So interesting. And the second thing that he says is he still thinks he's in charge. Back when he lived his life, he had all this luxury and all this wealth and all this comfort and all this. While, while Lazarus was sitting at his gates in, in torment with all the sores and everything with no good food, and he still thinks he's in charge. From hell, he's calling the shots. He's saying, man, send Lazarus down here to give me some comfort. And he still thinks that somehow he's got control over Lazarus and over his circumstances. And here's what we have to understand. This is a window into the human heart of the rich man here. It is, this is wild, but in, it is likely that this guy was not a pagan in the first century. 
Most people in the first century were not pagans. And the fact that the rich man calls Abraham father means that he was likely a God-fearer. It is likely that he actually understood the Hebrew scriptures. It's likely that he even prayed to God. But it is also incredibly clear in this moment that it's not his religiosity and it's not his religious affiliation that makes him clear with God. There was something else that he was building his life on that ended him where he ended up. And not only is he in hell, but he's without a name. Why? You see, he was building his life, his entirety of his life, on his riches, on his comfort, and his status in life. And when you build your entire life on one frame of thinking and and treasure, and it's finally removed, you've got basically no self left at that point. You have no identity. And that's why Lazarus has a name at the end of this, and the rich man does not. Check this out. This, I felt like this was just one of the most brilliant definitions of hell in my perspective, and you're going to have to follow me on this train of thought, okay? Pastor Tim Keller describes hell this way. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. It's a soul living in self, self-absorption, a self-centered life going on and on forever. And here's what we have to understand here is that all of us build our life on something, on something. And there's some people who build their life on wealth and riches and status and fame and all that stuff. Other people build their life around their health and how good they feel and how great they are physically. And other people, they build their life on their their body image or maybe on the, the approval of other people. And the reality here, this is what it's telling us, is that if we build anything in our life other than on the foundation of God himself, we're going to get to a place where it's going to start deteriorating all around us. And hell is only the final consequence of someone who's built their life on a foundation other than God. And when that happens, we become addicted to certain things that are eventually going to destroy us. We find the same addiction here and and evidence that this rich man was seriously addicted to his riches in the fact that he starts doing some things that only addicts do. If you catch this, he starts blame-shifting and denying where he's at. So check this out. He, he says, look, and, and this, is, this is wild, but, but he says, look, like, I, I want my riches. Like, please send someone down to cool my tongue because I, I want to get out of this agony. He doesn't ask to get removed from this particular place, but he's like, man, I just want my comfort back. I want my comfort back. Oh, and by the way, uh, if you just send some people to my brothers, then they'll probably likely not be here too because the, the problem was information and I didn't have enough of it. If I only had enough information, I wouldn't be in this kind of agony. And so he's kind of shifting this blame and and telling people that, like, I need more and more comfort. And this this is what all addicts do. They want more and more of something that is going to give them less and less and less. And in this moment, we find that he has no comfort left because he's been clinging to something to give him what it's never going to give him. And that's his riches. And the more addicted we become to particular things, the less and less identity we have and the more out of touch with reality we are. Man, if you've ever had friends or maybe you yourself have gone through serious addictions, you understand this. Uh, I had a friend, a very close friend of mine, who we were just really tight. We had great friendship all throughout growing up. And just in that there was something that was going on in his life that nobody knew about for a good 15 years. 
And after college, you know, we were still tight. And then all of a sudden, something hit his life and he just dropped off the map. Nobody knew where he went. Nobody really knew what happened. And like, it's just, he just disappeared completely. And it was only after about two and a half years into that process that we discovered that he had a a massive pornography addiction. It all came out because something, like his world just collapsed. And and at that point when when it got discovered, we, we learned that he was in that for about 15 years and it just tore his life apart. And in that, all of the immediate relationships, the closest relationships that he had, really got severed, and it's, it never has returned um, because he's just continually fighting that addiction. And it's just torn his self, his identity, his, his sense of self apart, and it just kind of slowly disintegrated in his life. And maybe you're struggling with a particular addiction right now. What this is telling us is the metaphorical language of fire and darkness is describing the kind of isolation and addiction that happens when we cling to anything other than God to give us our full sense of satisfaction and identity. There's a fire that starts in our hearts when we grip onto things to give us what they can never, ever truly give us. And this is why C.S. Lewis describes hell this way. He says, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each one of us, he says, there's something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. Man, we, we know this, guys. Like, in some of those moments where we get a, addicted to certain things and we just, you know, we grip onto it in a way that, that's just not healthy, like, we know it just starts getting us out of touch with reality. I'll be honest. Sometimes I've got, like, an entertainment addiction. You know, at the end of the day where I'm just tired, I'm looking for an escape from reality, I'll, like, I'll turn to my phone, you know? And, like, in that moment, like, I just want my phone to give me an escape, give me that kind of out that I'm looking for, and it never does. It usually takes me out of touch with reality, and I start missing my kids, I start missing my wife and really being present with them. There's, man, there's all sorts of things that, like, when we cling to something to give us what we hope it'll give us, anything other than God, it's really going to start disintegrating our life. And that's that fire. That's that fire of hell that starts with a grumble and unless we start dealing with it is eventually going to turn into hell because this is essentially what hell is. Hell is one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory to infinity. A life that is totally self-absorbed. Now, we get this picture, like, of God wanting to send people to hell. It's just not true. It's not true at all. In fact, Jesus said this about God's heart. We have to understand this. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive him away. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will, this is God's desire, ready? Is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's God's desire. God wants all of us to experience life eternal forever and ever in the the pleasure and the hope and the peace and the joy that is found with him for all eternity. That's his desire for us. So hell is not his desire for us. Hell, in so many ways, is our desire for us when we do not desire God and give everything over to him. And this is is what G.K. Chesterton said about hell. He said, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human 
choice. Catch this. God has given us free choice to do whatever we want with our life. He's not going to force us to follow him. But in that moment, if, if he's truly given us that freedom and we've said no thank you, to the author of everything good, God is the source of everything good, goodness, peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness. Like he is the source of all of that. And if we have said no thank you to God, I'd rather live for myself, what are you going to get? Man, nothing but a a fire and darkness, isolation, deep isolation. That's what hell is. And so at the end of the day, as C.S. Lewis wrapped it up this way, he said, there's only two kinds of people. There's people who say, thy will be done to God. Thy will be done. And those to whom God will say in the end, thy will be done. He said, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. I believe the damned are successful rebels until the end. They enjoy the horrible freedom which they have demanded. And so we have to understand, this is a window into the human heart. And just the question for all of us today is, what are we wrapping our identity and our sense of self around? And is it going to give you what you think it's going to give you? Man, I wish, I wish this morning was a moment where I could just like, I could laugh and pull out all sorts of funny and humorous things for you guys. Like, this is one of those things that I actually I really wrestle with. And I love being humorous because I think there's a, there's a sense of love in which our family can kind of enjoy as a church family when we just laugh at certain things. But this is one of those areas for me which it's hard to laugh about because it's so serious. And I think if, if we grip onto something other than God to give us what only God can give us, it's eventually going to be hell in our life multiplying forever and ever. So we have to understand the human heart, and and hell is critical for us understanding the human heart. Second, hell is necessary for living at peace in the world. You say, what? How in the world is that possible? And like, maybe you've seen this. You've seen that, like that bullhorn guy on the corner of a street who's just like, turn or burn, you know? Like, all those who don't trust in God, you're going to hell. Like, has anybody ever seen someone like that before? Yeah, like, maybe you've even had someone come up to you personally and say, like, man, like, unless you turn right now, you're going to hell. And in that moment, like, do you feel loved? Is it at all loving to receive something like that? No, not even close. I mean, it's so condemning and so judgmental, and it just, it hurts with everything inside of us. And, and so there are a lot of people that say, man, like, if you just believe in this doctrine of hell, it's deeply divisive, and it sets up walls between you and someone else, and, like, there's no way that you can live at peace in the world with something like that. Uh, my, my grandpa, when he passed away about a year and a half ago, my aunt, who's an incredibly immature Christian, um, she, uh, when he died, she said this to my atheist uncle— And to my grandmother, uh, she said, Grandpa didn't believe in Jesus, so I believe he's in hell right now. And in a moment like that, it's like the worst thing that you could tell somebody. And in that moment, my uncle looked at her and said, I mean, it just got heated fast, really angry fast. And he accused her of hate speech and all sorts of negative things. And and we've experienced some of this. We have. And Christians, even well-meaning Christians, have said some incredibly insensitive things that have hurt and cut deep. But we have to still understand this and wrestle with it because just because we don't like something doesn't mean that it's not true and doesn't mean that it's not helpful in the end. Uh, And in the West, uh, we just, we love this idea of a loving God who kind of lets us live however we want to live and just accepts us anyway. And we hate this doctrine of the wrath of God. But here's something we also have to understand. The rest of the world 
kind of flips that. Where 90% of the world is, is struggling with incredible evil in the world. They, in some ways, they reject this kind of turn-the-other-cheek kind of a God. And they embrace a God of wrath and justice because they deeply want the justice that they just they think they deserve in this world. Picture this with me, okay? Let's get outside of our like comfort 21st century American mindset, you know, where we like we think about lattes and couches all the time. Uh, and let's let's jump into a sense in which like maybe we you know we could grow up in a pretty horrific uh, experience around the world. Like if picture this, like if you're, you're if you're in a, a third world country and there was a warring tribe that came into your place, killed all the men, raped all the women, stole the young girls, and sold them into sex, sex trading, uh, trafficking, and all that. In that moment, would you be okay with a God who just turned the other cheek? There'd be a deep sense in us who would say, like, no, we need justice done. We, we crave justice in that moment. We have to have justice, because what they did was atrocious and horrifically evil. And yet a lot of us in our kind of our 21st century, you know, American mindsets, we're like, no, 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 we just love this whole turn the other cheek thing. Man, we just got to understand the comfort that we live in on a daily basis. If we just like the turn the other cheek mentality, then we have not experienced the kind of radical evil that a lot of people around the world have. And this is the truth. If you love someone, there are moments where you are filled with righteous wrath. I'm telling you, if anyone comes into my house and tries to mess with any one of my ladies, <laughs> like, and, and, and expects me to just be like, hey, you, you, gotta, you, you hit me too. You know, I'm just going to turn the other cheek. Like, you got another thing coming at that point, okay? Like, I'm going to be sending them out and wishing they never lived, okay? I love my ladies, and I'm not wrathful in spite of my love. I'm wrathful because of my love. Because I love them that much. And in all of this, God hates the evil of sin and the rebellion of rejecting him because he knows the kind of destruction that it has in every one of our lives and in the world that he loves so deeply. So we have to understand all of this, that just because we live in a 21st century American mindset where everything is so comfortable and nice doesn't mean that we need to reject the wrath of God because love often is accompanied by wrath. Honestly, It is only because God will ultimately deal with evil in the end that we now are equipped to be able to love other people and forgive them even in the face of horrific evil. This is what one theologian, Miroslav Volf, once said, reflecting on his own country of Croatia that had been at war with each other constantly. You know, one one person, one, one group of people just hating on and killing one group and then the other one retaliating and then going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And he's reflecting like, when will it stop and how will it stop? And this is what he said. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many, especially in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocents, it will invariably die. And as one watched it die one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. The picture he's painting here is that unless God ultimately deals with justice, 
unless he does that, we're going to take things into our own hands or we're going to pretend like it doesn't matter. Man, there's some of you in this room that you've been dealt some pretty horrific, evil things in this world and that matters. It matters. It matters to God. The injustice that you've been dealt deeply matters to him and he's going to deal with it one day. But to humanize yourself and not dehumanize yourself, we have to admit that it does matter. But to truly love and forgive and be reconciled to people, even who, those who have harmed us and, and wronged us and even forgive them, we have to rely on a God who will ultimately deal with that one day. And so it is only because of the doctrine of hell, this final judgment from God, that we can truly surrender this wrath and vengeance into his hands because God said, vengeance is mine. That's my field. I'll take care of that. Now you can go turn the other cheek because I love you and I'm going to deal with it. Now finally, uh, moment three here. This is, this is critical. Hell is necessary for understanding the heart of God. <laughs> Again, all of this seems so counterintuitive and I wrestle with it myself. Uh, but there's this idea that, man, like hell is kind of an extreme punishment. For those of us who live like 60 to 80 years in this world, you're going to get eternal punishment? Really? Like, that's extreme. How in the world is that just? But this is so important. Pastor Mark Clark said this, the degree to which a person experiences punishment is not typically based on how long it takes them to commit a crime, but the seriousness of the crime, the weight of its moral offense. And we've seen that in the shooting at Parkland, right? It only took six minutes to kill 17 people. And this kid is likely going to get the rest of his life in jail. So it's not the time that's committed. It's the seriousness of the crime. Because human life has value and worth, we demand a punishment that accounts for what's been taken, stolen. Something of equal value and worth. Now, this is the reality. Like, if you lie to your sibling, like, if if you just lie to your sibling or if you punch him in the face, like, you know, big whoop, you know? They're not going to, it's not going to be that big of a deal, you know? I just stole someone, something from my brother. Like, he's not going to retaliate against me all that much, right? Like, you can get away with a lot of things with your sibling. But, if you take something from mom and dad, it's going to get a little bit harder, right? Like, the consequences get a little bit more challenging. Like, man, you don't lie to mom and dad because something bad's going to happen. Now, think about that. If it, if it ups from a sibling to a parent, then, it, like, if you lie to a cop, it's going to get worse, Right? If you lie from a cop to the queen or the president or like a ruler of a country, man, infinitely worse. And yet something in our mind says that if we rely and we reject God, God's somehow going to be okay with it. It's okay. I love you. You're off the hook. Man, we've minimized the seriousness of sin. We have. Sin is this rejection of God. And we can't assume that that's a small thing. When we've rejected God and said, no, I want to live for myself and just be self-absorbed, no thank you, I want to live however, however I want to live, what happened was this deep-seated consequence that caused a rift, a seismic rift into all of eternity and reality that has such massive consequences that as we see in this parable here, it created a, a huge chasm between us and God, one that we could never broach or bridge on our, on our own. We could not do it. Sin is massive. And it presents this huge chasm between us and God. But here's the wild thing. God did something about it. He loves us so much that not only is he going to deal with sin and the consequences of sin and that rebellion, but he did it not on us, but on someone else for us. 
This is what blows my mind. That when we were lost and without hope and without God in the world, all of us, because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of us have, have chosen at various moments in our life to be self-centered and self-absorbed and not chosen to, to live our life completely for God. If that's true, then all of us have that chasm between us and God. But God in his infinite love in being the one who is both just and the one justifying decided, I'm going to pour out my divine justice and vengeance on the only one who can take this and heal and free all of humanity. And he did it on his own son, Jesus Christ. This is what blows my mind. And in the moment of this, where he decided to pour it out in all of this, what he did is he said that evil deeply matters, but I'm going to deal with it because I I refuse to let the world kind of be consumed by its own hatred and its own self-absorption. I love what what, uh, this author, Becky Pippert, in her book, Hope Has Reasons, She said it this way. Think of how we feel when someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And instead of being indifferent, God decided, I'm going to love the whole world by pouring out my wrath on my own son so that everyone else can be free who turns to him. Jesus said in John 3, 17, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. This is the hope that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, that though hell is real, and it's a real place, and it's a real place for all eternity— for all those who have freely chosen to have an identity and a sense of worth and self that is chosen apart from God, that does not have to be your reality. But I'm telling you right now, saying all the evil things about hell and its experience, like that is never going to motivate any one of our hearts to get out of it. One, one pastor put it this way. He said when he was a kid, he went to a, a summer camp uh, in which uh, Friday night, it was a Christian summer camp. He wasn't a Christian. His family wasn't a Christian, but he went to this summer camp. Uh, and at the end, they had this famous, like, you know, turn or burn talk. And uh, they, they would gather around the fire, and they had all these little kids, these middle schoolers, gather around the fire, and he pulled out a, some lighter fluid, and he threw it on the fire, and the fire went boom. And he's like, is that what you want for all eternity, kids? He said they had a 100% conversion rate that night because all the kids are like, not for me. But is that enough? No. A couple of years later, the same pastor said that he rejected Christianity altogether. Um, he did, wanted nothing to do with Christians in church because all he got was this kind of judgment and condemnation. And it wasn't until he really started exploring who God was and not the image that Christians had portrayed that he started understanding the love of God. It wasn't until he understood what God did for him, not against him, that he turned his life over to Christ because he realized that God, in the midst of our hopelessness, provided hope by becoming a curse in our place, by taking our spot on the cross of death that we so deserved. And he did it because of his love for us. And so the challenge for all of us today is this. What are you building your life on? And is it enough And if it's not on Jesus and what he has done for you, his finished work on the cross for us 2,000 years ago, 
it'll eventually end up in this self-absorption that's going to destroy us and turn us on the inside out. And we see that when all of us are addicted to a number of things. But if God has truly poured out his wrath ultimately on his son and not on us, then we have reason to hope for all eternity. And that hope ought to drive us to the love of God, not away from the love of God. And in that moment, the last thing that I wanted to share with you guys is that if this is true, if hell is true, then we cannot keep it to ourselves. This hope that we now have and the freedom that we now have in Jesus Christ. For those of us who believe in Jesus and that he is the reason, we cannot keep it to ourselves anymore. Check this out. If we keep it to ourselves, it is the epitome of hatred. Not, not even kidding. Penn and Teller. Anybody know that the famous magi- uh, magicians? Yeah, Penn and Teller. They're great. Um, but uh, Penn is also a, a serious atheist. And at the end of one of his shows, uh, he had a guy come up to him and compliment him and care for him and all that. But he also handed him a Gideon's Bible. And Penn reflects on this moment as an atheist receiving a Bible from someone who cared about him. He put it this way. He said it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes, meaning he cared about me. And he was truly complimentary. It didn't seem like an empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane, (laughs) unlike probably a lot of Christians he met, uh, and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And then when asked this question of whether he respected people who did not try to win others to their faith, he said, I don't respect that at all. This is an atheist talking now. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could go to hell or not um, get eternal life or whatever and you think that it's really not worth telling them because it would just make it socially awkward and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize just just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I just tackle you. And this is a lot more important than that. Friends, this doctrine of hell is hard and it's a hard one to grasp and it's a hard one to digest. But it's critically important for understanding our own heart. What are you building your life on? It's crucial that we understand what it means to live at peace and reconciliation with this world knowing that there's a hope out there that God has so freely offered us. And it's critical for understanding this massive love of God that he has freely poured out because his desire is life and hope and peace for you for all eternity. Can we keep that to ourselves? Man, let's pray. God, just open our eyes on this one. As hard as it is for us to wrestle with this, God. Help us to see that out of all this, you have hope for us. And I pray that we would not keep it to ourselves, but that we would share it with everyone we know because of what you have done for us, God. And so in a minute, God, as we sing, as we celebrate what you've done by paying the price fully by your blood and your broken body on the cross 2,000 years ago, dying in our place, I pray, God, that you'd awaken this love for you, not a fear, but instead, God, a deep-seated love and gratitude for all that you've done for us, God, to liberate us and to extract us out of an eternity apart from you into a family that will never, ever die. 
It's in that hope, God, that we celebrate and we invite and we serve and we engage in this mission because of your love. In Christ's name, amen.